There is a lot about the Bible that perplexes me. But maybe the most perplexing story in the Bible is the story of Moses. Now, I don't mean the stories that Moses is most known for, like the let my people go stories or the burning bush, or even when he receives those clear instructions written on stone tablets by the very hand of God. I mean, wouldn't that be nice? These stories are strange, of course, but they also make a kind of sense to me, which doesn't mean to say anything about whether or not they are factually true, but just more that they are the sort of stories that a people, that is the Hebrew people in this case, would want told about one of their most heroic leaders of all time. They are powerful stories, inspiring stories, And they underscore how righteous Moses is, as the people would want to. This is one one way to think about the Bible, actually, as a record of the ways that the Hebrew people came to make sense of and want told about how they lived, how they tried to make sense of all of it. Which is why it is so perplexing that after all Moses does to lead the people out of slavery, after wandering in the desert for 40 years, the whole time with them swearing about how slavery was better and about how he was infringing on their rights. Finally, the Hebrew people find themselves on the border of the promised land and Moses isn't there. Because just before that, see, Moses dies. Right. He gave his whole life to getting his people to the promised land, and Moses does not get to go. And not only that, but he doesn't really even know for sure if the people go either. He dies not just before he gets to the promised land, he dies before anyone gets to the promised land. It is unfair and absurd. Some people say that he's being punished because he gave his whining people more water when God said not to, but come on. If giving in to a whiny ask for water is grounds for undoing every good thing you've ever done in your life, then every parent everywhere is doomed. That cannot be it. This sort of outrage is what led my, it both entertained and challenged my Bible professor in seminary, who one day made the probably most obvious observation. He said to me, Gretchen, it seems to me that you have a problem with this God. And I was like, what gives you that idea? It wasn't actually God that I had a problem with. It was more the ways that the stories always made it seem like God had all the power and humans had none. And okay, yes, also God was sometimes kind of a jerk and jerk is a serious understatement. So one day after we reread again the early part of Exodus, where it tells about how the Hebrew people had been enslaved for 400 years, and then God saves them, and it was clear that everyone around them thought that th- around me thought that this was really good news. I was appalled. I burst out to one of my classmates. First of all, where was God for 400 years? Vacation? And second of all, why should we be waiting for God to save us? I mean, don't we need stories to remind us of how of our agency and how we can and must work together to save each other? My classmate, who by the way, was an African-American man getting his PhD focused on the black church. He looked at me, he paused, 
And then he took a deep breath before gently, more gently than I deserved. He offered, well, when you can't imagine there's anything in this world that's going to make things better, you better start hoping that there's something out of this world that could. It was one of those moments. You know, the sort of moments that make you want to crawl back into a hole, but also you don't because everything in you starts to crack open. In that moment, the Bible and the way I've been reading it like cracked open. And also my privilege obviously cracked open in me and also my bias. I mean, maybe God was not the only jerk in the room. The story I had about human agency, how we all have it and equally, it is a story that those of us who are white and well, formally educated and American, we are carefully, subtly and systematically taught the whole of our lives. And in many ways, the story about human agency has also been an implicit story of Unitarian Universalism, even if in our version, we focus less on individual success than on collective progress. You know, we can and we must save each other. And if we work hard enough, do the right things, si se puede, right? Yes, we can. I've thought about my classmates' words so often since that conversation each time feeling like I, I grasp what he was saying just a little bit more, feel it more close in. Some of that, of course, has to do with the work I've done over these years on race and racism and white supremacy and whiteness, but also it is about getting older, confronting changes in my body, not to mention parenting teenagers, which is a daily lesson and how little control any of us have. And also, it's the last few years. I mean, all of it. The new levels of helplessness that I know many of us have confronted, especially when we have, as our last ser series invited, gotten and stayed honest and clear about the reality of here and now. And especially if, like Florence Field talked about a couple of Sundays ago, we, um, we marched for civil rights and thought a new world was just around the corner. And here we are. And what has changed? Like the Israelites, here we are decades later, still wandering the desert. All of these things and countless others have taught me the real reason that Moses doesn't live to see the outcome of his life's work. The real reason is that there is no reason. There's no reason because this is just how life is. We come to the end of our story in the middle of a larger story, a movement that was at work before we were born and that will continue long after we are gone. We do what we can in the time that we have, and then we let go. One day, last week on that day, you know, 
when the sky turned dark orange and the fires were headed for the places that many of us consider ground no less holy than what Moses found on that mountaintop, which was the same day I sent my kids off into the falling ash for their first day of in-person school since March, even though the infection rates in Larimer County are now the worst they've ever been, which was the same day the Senate Judiciary Committee voted to confirm a conservative extremist as Ruth Bader Ginsburg's replacement, despite most voters believing they should wait until after the election that day. With all these moments circling around me, I heard my classmates' words in my ears like he was talking to me right now. When you can't imagine anything in the world that's gonna make things better, you better start hoping that there's something out of this world that could. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where will my help come? The psalmist question is an especially vexing one. If you, like me, have a problem with God, at least in the traditional sense. In my rational self, my higher self, I might say, the arc of history, which is long but bends towards justice, that's what will help. Or I might listen again to Scott's beautiful opus describing the great story of the universe and remember how fleeting this moment is, how insignificant any of this really is, how insignificant we are. But in the end, as the poet Stephen Dunn writes, you can't say to your child, evolution loves you. In other words, it's a beautiful story that is factually true, but it can feel so far away. It might as well be make-believe. It's like help that doesn't really feel like help. It's only when I find ways to thread together my original human-focused impulse towards agency and collective liberation, which need not be totally thrown away with the beyond-human story of life in a greater sense. I mean, when I look at the ash falling from the sky and remember that it is not disconnected from the dark, spooky, kind of gross smoke that Scott says is between the stars, which is not disconnected from the, pul the blood pulsing through through the firefighters doing the impossible right now, holding the line on all that holiness, when I refuse to separate myself from the universe in any way, and yet know how much more than not me of the universe there is, than there is me. When I find ways to eat the stars, pepper hot and sharp, even on nights when the smoke is so thick, they seem like they are all gone. Only then do I start to get a sense of that thing that people talk about that is a higher power that I could hold onto and turn to help that could be both personal and transcendent. How to eat the stars by the way, to answer the, the, the question the service poses, there are a hundred ways to try. Look up at the night sky, lie down like Rebecca Ellison describes, visualize, imagine, 
Or when the stars are hidden in smoke or sun, we can try censoring prayer or creative writing or dancing wildly with abandon. Like all things worth doing, it just takes practice and commitment and intention, some courage, and maybe more than in other practices, it takes a sense of wonder so that you invite in that ancient life of primordial power and possibility, that movement of love and justice that just like the stars, even when we cannot see it, pulses on and on and on and on like the beating of your heart. One last story. It was 1966, and the young activist Jim Forrest was at the point of despair about the state of the Vietnam War. When he reached out to the Catholic mystic Thomas Merton for advice, Merton responded, but maybe not in exactly the way Forrest expected. He wrote to him, Jim, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and even achieve no results at all if not perhaps results opposite to what you expect. As you get used to this idea, you start to more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the rightness, the truth of the work itself. In these last few months of 2020, amen, and these last few days of the election cycle, amen, amen, amen. And with winter coming, uh, I know that many of us are like the activist who wrote to Thomas Merton, I mean, about our own life or about life itself. We are on the verge of despair. And so in the spirit of Merton's response, I invite us to remember in these days that when we commit ourselves to a movement that is worthy of our lives, our whole lives, then like Moses, we're not going to live to see how it all turns out, which is not punishment. It's just the power of the movement of life going on. So whatever results come, let us remember that these results are always provisional, always about a moment, because the other thing the last few years have taught us is that things that seem like victories at one point later might look like we're going backwards. We must not depend on the hope of results. Now, all of this, it might sound sort of feudalist, but actually I mean exactly the opposite. We hold within us the power of stars. And so we must keep offering our life momentary as it is infinitesimal, a speck of dust, star dust, for whatever good we can find. Find the movement in this moment. And then trust, and then let go.